name is Jason Boker. I will be reading 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. So if you wish, you may turn to that, those verses. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Um, today we get uh, the opportunity to talk about suffering. I know you're all excited about that. You didn't maybe expect to come to church today, and that, that'd be the uplifting topic, maybe. Um, but that's where God has us in His Word. We're continuing through First Peter, and that's why I like going through a book of the Bible because wherever we are, we land on that that day. That's where we are. And today, God has us talking about suffering for the sake of Christ. And uh, before we dig into the passage and, and pray um, for God's leading there, I just had a couple questions and just some thoughts for us to think about. Um, so one question I have for all of you is, uh, when's the last time you suffered for the sake of Christ? Have you ever suffered as a Christian? Um, I'm sure some of you have. Maybe, maybe if you are a Christian, uh, and there's varying degrees of suffering, right? I was thinking about myself, and I could maybe a couple times, if you could even call it suffering. There's this one I used to do construction, and, and I was a, a duct work, sheet metal worker, HVAC guy. And uh, there's this one time I was like 30 feet in the air on a scissors lift, and there was like a cage match about ready to happen because there's a guy like twice my size, which I know it's hard to believe, but he's twice my size, and he had a he had a he had a screwdriver in my face, and he was calling me a punk kid who knew nothing after I shared the gospel with him, and uh, I had nowhere to go. I'm 30 feet in the air. He had controls over there, and I'm like, okay, uh, what's going to happen? But thankfully, I went down. I'm still here. Um, that I don't even think I would call that suffering. I mean, it was a little bit of a rebuke. It was a little bit of um, you know resistance, but uh, that might be the closest thing I can think of, of suffering for the name of Jesus. Um, and how about you? How about you? Like, some of you, I know, maybe do suffer as Christians. Maybe you are a Christian um, in, a, in a relationship, you're, and you're a, believing, a believer, and, and your spouse is not, and so maybe you every day suffer a little bit of ridicule or um, being made fun of. Um, some of you maybe do suffer for Jesus in other ways, small or big, and there's, there's varying degrees. 
this past Easter Sunday, there were believers gathered at a local park in Lahore, Pakistan, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. That afternoon, Islamic Taliban terrorists massacred more than 70 people in a suicide attack, including many women and children. At least 320 were badly injured, and afterward, the Taliban bragged about the slaughter, saying they were targeting Christians. Two weeks earlier, two churches were bombed during worship services, killing 15 and wounding many more. In Niger, churches have been bombed, and others burned to the ground by angry hordes of Islamic followers. Four national Bible translators were recently murdered by extremists in a Middle Eastern country. Eleven indigenous Christians were crucified and beheaded in Aleppo, Syria, last fall. Four nuns were brutally mowed down by Islamic gunmen in Yemen in March. And these are just a few of the thousands of believers who have been persecuted for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Got that from an article written by Franklin Graham. So what do you think? Is it easier to be a Christian in Windsor, Colorado, or in Lahore, Niger, Aleppo, or Yemen? Well, bless you. It all depends on how you define easy, right? If by easy you mean safer, able to be out in the open and not underground, not getting shot at or beheaded for being a Christian, able to blend in with the culture and remain anonymous so that hardly anyone would be able to differentiate between you and any other nice law-abiding person, then it's easier here. Conversely, if by easy you mean to live every moment like it counts in utter dependence and need of the Lord to sustain you and get you through each day, seeing the desperate need to see others around you saved, seeing the urgency of seeing God's kingdom advanced by sharing the gospel to actually see the difference and beauty in being a true on-fire Christ follower as opposed to any other nice person. Maybe it's easier there. Maybe it's easier in those places. So the question then becomes, what kind of easy do you want? Do you want the easy kind of easy? Uh, the comfortable kind of easy? Or the suffering daily, life-threatening, take up your cross daily kind of easy? And I know I painted a black and white picture there. Um, like it's either or, right? There's nothing in between. Um, is, is, it might not be fair, right? Are those the only two options? Number one, an innocuous Christianity, or number two, a get your head chopped off every any moment kind of Christianity? Is there anything in between? Uh, here's the deal. We, the truth is we must face this, that God in his perfectly wise, just and sovereign providence put us here. He saved you if you're a believer, and he put you in America, right, where it's easy to blend in. It's easy to come here on a Sunday morning and do some stuff for him, which I'm not trying to take away from. Do some stuff for him in this building once a week. Be nice at work and in your neighborhood and still be someone who loves Jesus. And one day we'll live with him in heaven, even after experiencing a relative heaven on earth in Windsor, Colorado. And he's also decided to save some other people and put them in a war zone, a hell on earth, where every day their lives are hanging by a thread, where their next meal isn't guaranteed and their next day isn't guaranteed. And you and I have to figure out how to be real, on fire, gospel, uh, proclaiming, risking it all, suffering for Jesus Christians in a comfy culture like this. How do we do that? Right? How do we do that? It, it's really, it's, uh, it's really kind of hard to be a Christian here like that, isn't it? Do you have to go to Kenya or Nigeria or Czech Republic to be that way? So this morning, we're going to continue in 1 Peter, as I said, and 
we're going through this book and, and, and look at a passage that maybe barely applies to us. Maybe, it, I mean, but God's word never returns void, right? So maybe it does apply to us very much. And so I hope that God has something for each one of us here. First Peter has tons to say about suffering. Um, over 18 times suffering and trials are mentioned in First Peter. He's trying to encourage Christians that were dispersed in that early church to encourage them in the midst of persecution for their, for their faith. He gives them hope in their glorious inheritance. He encourages them to be obedient, even in hard trials, that temporary suffering will come, but so does an eternal glorious inheritance. And so we're going to dive right in, chapter 4, verse 12. But before we do that, let me pray for our time. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you um, for this opportunity that we have today to just dig into your word. I thank you for this passage that you have for us um, sovereignly today. That, that this, is, this is the passage for us today. Um, Lord, would you just instruct our minds and our hearts in, in what you'd have for us. Lord, how, how do we live out this Christianity in this place, in this time, in this relatively comfy place. Lord, teach us. We need you desperately. I need you. Help us all come under your word and by your spirit instruct us and help us go out of here uh, more on fire, more in love with you uh, because you loved us so much. And so we thank you and just go before us, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So verse 12, um, we're going to walk through the passage, if you would read that with me again. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Now this, that verse should remind us of the first chapter of 1 Peter. Um, there's an intro, he reminds uh, uh, his readers uh, of this glorious inheritance, you remember that, that's unfading imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. Um, and then he says this in verse 6 and 7. You can turn back with me, read with me. Um, chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. In this, that inheritance, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These are the fiery trials that, that Peter is talking about in chapter 4. He's, he's referring back to them. He says, beloved or dear ones. It's a term of endearment, like uh, very dear ones to me. Um, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when, not if, but when it happens, when it comes upon you. Because it is coming. It will come. It needs to come. Why? Because God is purifying the church through these trials, just like God, gold is purified in fire. So it's a metaphor, right? Gold, when it's melted down, it's purified. And that's the metaphor that God uses through Peter to talk about the church. The church is tri but trial by fire, and he's purifying us. And that's how he's been doing it for the last 2,000 years. Every time there's persecution and trials in the church, that's when it gets purified. The, the true believers are separated from the false believers. And Peter's saying it's coming it's already here, and it's right around the corner. Don't be surprised when it comes, as though something strange were happening to you. I don't know if you've ever been to a surprise party in your honor, and maybe you've known about it, like you knew about it ahead of time, and uh, you had to act surprised when you showed up. I don't know if that's happened to you. Um, or, you, you know, like, and you have to kind of, like, 
pretend you're surprised. Or I don't know if you have, like me, in your household, someone, a family member who likes to jump out, out around a corner to scare, to scare you. Uh, silly. Um, I have a daughter that likes to do that to me. And so all the time, like in the house, I'm like preparing myself. Like, you know, I know she, she could be around the corner. Just side knows what I'm talking about. She just like comes behind you and just scares the snot out of me. Um, so, so like we're prepared, right? And, and, and so she gets really disappointed when we don't look surprised. It's like, oh, you know, and that's what Peter's saying. It's like, prepare yourself. Don't be surprised. Like it shocks you. Like, be ready. Guard yourself against it. It is coming, so just beware. Beware of it. That's what Peter's saying. Be ready for trials, for suffering. Set yourself up in a way that you won't be shocked when it comes. And they shouldn't be surprised. Jesus warns his disciples from the beginning, right? They shouldn't be surprised at this teaching. Because he said this all along. He said, in this world you will have trouble. And he also said in John 15, if the world hated me, it will hate you. If they persecuted me they will also persecute you. And it was just like a prophecy. They were, they were all persecuted. What should surprise us, though? Just think about that. Okay, so don't be surprised at trials and suffering. Then what should we be surprised at? Um, that we aren't suffering, maybe. More. We're not suffering more for the name of Christ now. Why aren't we? Um, it's promised to us. I'm surprised, and I wonder why we're not being persecuted more, actually. Um, why we aren't suffering more for being Christians. Honestly, when Jesus so clearly promises his followers that it will come, why hasn't it really come for us? Well, God's sovereign and he knows it's all his timing, right? He, he put us here. Peter goes on, so surprise is not the appropriate response. What is? Verse 13. Here's the response. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 13 is a hard verse to take. Is it not? Like rejoice, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. First, to understand it, like let's look at what it doesn't say. It doesn't say just rejoice in suffering, like, you know, any suffering. It's not, it's not talking about just any suffering here. Um, meaning, no, but it, it's talking about a specific type of suffering, the suffering shared with Christ. Second, it also doesn't say rejoice when you suffer for Christ. Merely, it doesn't merely say that. Like, you know, you're alone in this. Um, I just want you, God's just asking me to suffer for him as a kind of a penance for him or a way to worship him. It's not merely saying that. It's saying Rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings. That word share is an important word because it's a suffering he already, he already did for us. He already suffered for us. He already went through it all for us. He already went through the fiery trial for us. And so we're sharing it with him. And that's encouraging, isn't it? Like Peter reminds us that in, in chapter two, verse 21, he says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. You know, that passage, that you were, he was reviled and he did not revile in return. So he suffered before us. And so we're sharing in his suffering. We, we do not have a, um, a high priest that is unable to relate to us. And, uh, and he shares in our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every way. He's suffered so many ways. So we're sharing it. 
So we can rejoice, Peter's saying this, so we can rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings. But it doesn't stop there. Peter is giving us this reason for rejoicing in this kind of suffering. In the next verse, he says, that you may. Very important words. You can rejoice that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter is encouraging them that rejoicing and suffering now means rejoicing later in a greater way, later on. It's going to be greater rejoicing later. You'll be glad later. So you can rejoice now knowing that something greater is coming, is what he's saying. So what does that mean, though, that like when his glory is revealed, when Christ's glory is revealed? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I don't know if any of us are really sure like what, it, what it's going to look like when we see God face to face, when we see Jesus and we bow before him. And what's that going to be like when he comes in all his glory? We, we don't really know for sure, but we have indications in Scripture. And it's worth looking at, I think, to understand this because it will encourage our hearts and to enable us to suffer for him. So first, one thing I notice as I'm studying, and I love studying God's word, I love preparing for a message because I like, just get so much out of it. But one thing I learned in 1 Peter is that um, many times when you see suffering, and also in the New Testament, when you see suffering, it's accompanied with glory in the same sentence. <coughs> suffering and glory are always connected. Not always, but many times they're connected. Let me read a couple passages just to remind you, Romans 5, 1 through 5 says, We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces, and then Paul lists all these things that suffering produces our character, our hope. And then Colossians 1, Paul says this to the Colossian church, 1, 24 through 27, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions to make the word of God fully known. How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then, so suffering and glory. See the, the connection, suffering and glory. And then we can see it all over 1 Peter. So, so if, if you're open in 1 Peter, you can go back to chapter 1. I'm just going to walk us through these different places where suffering and glory are connect, connected. And the first place we see it, we've already read it, 1 Peter 1, 6-7. I'll read it again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That's, that's connected with suffering, right? Trials. And so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then 8 and 9 continue. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Uh, and, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then later, uh, a little bit later, verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, there's that word, and the subsequent glories. Like it's, like it's sufferings of Christ and and the glories follow, subsequent glories. Jesus is now glorified because he suffered. Now verse 21, chapter 1. Who through him are believers in God. I know these are fragments. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 
talking about his suffering, he raised him from the dead so that your faith and hope are in God and gave him glory. And then in five, chapter 5, see it, see it again. We're going we're gonna to be talking about these in a couple weeks. We're going to be going through chapter 5. But just to highlight, chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. See, Paul's not only saying, or I mean, sorry, Peter's not only saying that um, Jesus is glorified, he's saying, I'm a partaker in it. We're partakers in it. And in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We will receive that. It's unfading crown of glory. And then verse 10, last verse that connects the two. And after you have suffered a little while for the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen, establish you. The connection of suffering and glory, it's all over. So glory is a word we throw around a lot in, in church, right? We say it, we sing it. Do we really know what it means? Um, here's, some, here's some ways to define it. It's a, it's a hard word to define, actually, because uh, it, ha- it has so much fullness to it. But, but here's, some, here's an attempt. Uh, reputation. Splendor In the Greek, it actually literally means a reputation or an opinion or an esteem of somebody. It's their glory. It's their splendor. It's magnif- magnificence, excellence, preeminence, dignity, grace, majesty, brightness, and exalted state. It has this idea of heaviness. Have you heard of that, that phrase, weight of glory in Scripture? It has, it's all of God's muchness, I've heard it said his muchness, his reputation in in all he is. And when you and I share his glory, we are sharing his muchness, his reputation, his grace, his exaltation, his majesty, his splendor. One day when we're glorified with him, we'll be one with him and in heaven with him. We share in that somehow. I don't know. It's a mystery, but we get to share in it. It sounds really cool. I'm not exactly sure. We'll know when we see it. And when you, and this is this is why we can rejoice in suffering because that's coming. Because we know that in effect, our suffering is actually purchasing for us that glory, a glory that we share with the Son for eternity. And now, with all that, I don't think we should think of glory as like getting stuff, like you know, my glorious body. I'm gonna be glorified. I'm gonna be like a super superhuman, like, you know, with a new body, I get to fly, and I'm going to be all shiny in heaven and in the clouds. I mean, I'm not sure. That, I mean, that might be true, maybe, but I don't think that's, like, the essence of glory uh, necessarily. But, but what we need to think about is that what's so amazing about being one with God and, and sharing his glory is that we get him with it. We get to be with him, not just get stuff from him, but we get to actually be with him, to be in our Father's arms, that's, that's amazing. That's, that's the glory. So why did Jesus suffer for you and me? If I've asked you that, like, why did Jesus die on the cross? One answer would be to save, your, save us from our sins. One answer would be to bring us to um, eternal life. But all that leads us to what? That he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Not just give us stuff. Not just give us a mansion in the sky and money in our pocket, but give us himself. God is the inheritance. Himself. Our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading because God is. God is glorious. He glorifies us to share in that glory with him, to be with him. We get him, and that's why we can rejoice in suffering. 
because we know our reward later will be so much greater because we get to be with him. We'll talk more about that later. Let's go to verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 13 is future looking, like you're going to get this glory, you're going to be with God, and when, he, when his glory is revealed, in verse 14 is present. You are blessed, it says. The spirit of glory and of God rests, present tense, upon you now. I'm not sure all of what that means exactly, but I believe that Peter is at least um, kind of going along with Paul when he says the spirit is our guarantee for that inheritance coming. Ephesians 1.14 that the Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We're going to sing a song at the end, to the praise of the glory. And earlier in, in Peter's letter in, in 1.5, he says, By God's power, you are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So right now, in the midst of suffering, you are being guarded. You, the Spirit of God rests upon you. You're being protected in it, through it. You're not alone. Not only, number one, you have a future glorious, uh, unfading inheritance, but now you're being guarded. I've got you. You're okay. Verse 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So verse 15, I, I just thought it was kind of an interesting list, right? It's kind of eclectic. It starts with a murderer and it ends with a meddler. It seems kind of like a big gap, you know? Um, I've never been convicted of murder. I have meddled with a lot of people. Uh, I have meddled in people's lives, gotten my nose in business I shouldn't have. Um, I'm an instigator, I always get other people in trouble. I probably should have suffered for those things. Uh, but but so, so Peter's just covering the broad gamut of like, if you've done something, um, and, and any, anywhere from murder to meddling, you deserve the suffering you get. You've done that to yourself. But if you're a Christian and you suffer, in contrast, do not be ashamed. Be ashamed for those other things, but don't be ashamed for suffering as a Christian. The term Christian in New Testament is always, except in this case, used by opponents of believers. Oh, those are those Christians over there, those Christ followers is what it means. But here it's used by Peter, Christians. The term means follower of Christ. If you suffer because you are following in Christ's ways, do not be ashamed. That's what it means. And I was thinking this week of the first Christ followers, the disciples. Um, they followed Jesus wherever he went. It'd be pretty easy. Sometimes I thought, like, man, if I could just have Jesus here, I wouldn't have to wonder where he's going, so I don't know how to follow him. If he's going that way, I'll follow him that way. It's pretty easy. And they did that for three years. If he went to Galilee, they went to Galilee. If he went there, he went. they went there, you know, and, and so on. Uh, if Jesus went through Samaria, even though it was harder and awkward, they still went through Samaria with Jesus. Following Jesus was a little more tangible, a little easier at that time. And they followed him, and they followed him. It was easy until Jesus went to Jerusalem for the last Passover, the week he was going to be crucified. Then it got hard to follow Jesus, right? You know how, how the story goes. It's read the Gospels. Um, he, he went to Judea, and, and, and before that, before he went, in John 11, the disciples were like, Jesus, you were just almost stoned. They wanted to stone you there, and you want to go back? And you're like, Jesus is like, yeah, let's go. And, and Thomas, remember Thomas? He said, well, he kind of got it. He was kind of brave in that moment. Let us go, that we might die with him. That's what Thomas said. 
Easier said than done, though. Once they got to Jerusalem, tables were turned over. He's like, he's like driving the money changers out of the temple, and things are getting harder. They're getting harder. Um, he went into the garden to pray. His followers fell asleep, didn't they? they? They fell asleep instead of keeping watch. Jesus is arrested. Thomas is nowhere to be seen. It got hard. They left. They scattered and stopped following. Peter, Peter kind of kept going. He went to the courtyard of the high priest. It was too hard. He stopped following. See, they followed Jesus until he started suffering. They did what he did. They looked like him, associated with him, entrusted themselves to him. He taught. They taught. He multiplied food. They fed. He did miracles. They did miracles. He suffered, and they left. Stop following. Suffering, none of that's where this train stops. That's where I'm going to get off. I'm not going to follow anymore. So if these first Christ followers weren't even willing to be arrested, they weren't going to the cross either with him. Not yet anyway. We'll get back to that in a sec. Verse 17 and 18. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what would be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he quotes Proverbs 11.31. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? In the Old Testament, uh, household of God literally means house of God um, in, in this passage, refers to the temple. But if you remember in 1 Peter 2, Peter's saying that God's, God's building himself a new temple. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So if you look all over the prophets in the Old Testament, God's judgment often starts with his people. At the temple, it starts with the leaders, the, the shepherds who are leading his people astray. And it starts there, and then it moves outward. And you can see that in Ezekiel, you can see it in Jeremiah, all over. And there's no exception. God is starting with his household, this household that he's building, the church. He's, that's where judgment starts. Why does he do that? Again, it's because he's purifying the church. He's making the church holy and blameless without spot and, and, and blemish to present, to present her to himself as a bride for, his bride for the bridegroom. Judgment starts with us. Um, and Peter's saying, here it comes. It's right around the corner. Watch out. And here's a question. Is it time for the church in America to be purified? I think so, frankly. Churches and seminaries, people who call themselves Christians all over are blurring lines. And, and only through persecution, suffering, and trials, just like for the last 2,000 years, the true church emerges, the remnant. And I believe it's already begun, and, and true Christians in the room here should not be surprised when that happens could be happening from within, not necessarily from without. The Christian, quote, in quotes, community. Verse 18. Scarcely saved does not mean that the righteous just barely receive salvation. You know, it kind of sounds like that. Scarcely means with difficulty. So, so uh, the righteous are saved in the midst of suffering. It's a, it's a reinforcement of what I just said. Like the righteous, the church gets saved in the midst of suffering. Their salvation is not easy and simple. 
So how much more for the, for the people who aren't saved, the people who are the sinners, the ungodly? That's what he's saying. So, so back to what a Christian is again, like a follower of Christ. What is a Christian again? Is, is, it, is being a Christian supposed to be easy and simple? Is, 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 is it someone who merely follows a teaching or is it someone who just serves in their giftedness or is a Christian someone who suffers, who dies? To follow Jesus is to suffer and die, to be buried and take up our cross daily. And then comes the resurrection later, right? The glorified bodies come, they're coming. The sharing and the riches and the glories of Jesus we talked about, but we gotta go through the suffering first, the trials first, the death um, and the burial first. Wouldn't it be easier just to have a faith in Jesus? You know, start following with him, start following him. You know, doing stuff for him. Skip the whole cross and death part and the burial part, and, and just be resurrected in new bodies and be done. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be cool if we could do that? I mean, I would like that. That, would, that. that sounds easy. Sounds comfy. Why can't they be my Christian experience? Guess what? It kind of is in America. Um, it can, be, it can be our experience. Come to Christ. Start following him. Do some stuff for him. Serve a little. Then die when you're 90-something in your sleep and, and go meet our inheritance. What's so bad about that? How many people here want that? Um, the disciples wanted that. Right? For at least a little while. They would follow a miracle work in Jesus, a teaching Jesus, but not a wounded, arrested, crucified, and buried Jesus. So how about us? I think there's hope, right? There's encouragement. Um, it's a bleak picture, maybe, a painting. But if you guys would turn with me, we'll, we'll kind of finish with this passage to Acts 5. It's a familiar passage. It's like one of those chapters in, in the Bible that I'm so, like, every time I read it, I close the book, and I want to go out and run and do stuff for Jesus. I just want to, like, you know, reckless abandon. I just want to do stuff, and I don't care, you know. And then and five minutes later, I might forget it. I don't know. But um, I love this passage. And we see these Christ followers, what became of them. And you guys all know this, but it's good to be reminded. If you've read Acts at all, you, you, this will be familiar, but it's, it's just encouraging. They became radically different followers, not that much later. In Acts 5, we see different men, different types of followers. After the church starts growing and souls get added day by day and, and sharing uh, everything together, they're doing miracles like Jesus did. They get arrested by the high priest. Um, they get arrested and, and then uh, and the Jewish council, and then they get thrown in jail. And then 519, we'll pick it up. But during the night, after they're arrested, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Then the next day, the council goes to get the disciples from prison to question them. But the guards come back and say they vanished. You know, the guards are still there, but there's no disciples. And, and they're gone. And while they're still talking, in verse 25, someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the guards grabbed them again and brought them before the council again. In verse 27, the high priest questioned them. It's the same high priest that questioned Jesus, same high priest in whose courtyard Peter cowered in fear. And he said, we, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God 
rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. Sounds a little bolder than before. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. Kill them. Then later, you know the story, after much debate, Gamaliel, uh, a leader in the council, convinces them that you know to let them go because if it's of God, they can't thwart it, and if it's of man, it'll fail anyway. And then in verse 39, the story kind of concludes. It says, so they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, here's the part, they beat them, and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Does that encourage you? I mean, like, wouldn't that be awesome if that was you and me? I think so. I'm going to close the book. I'm going to go outside and go, and I'll forget about it in a half hour, right? When we eat lunch. So how do we how do we not do that, right? How do we how do we like in America do this? Before these Christ followers only followed until it got hard, but then they saw Jesus raised in his glory, his ascension. They heard his commission, they received the Holy Spirit, and they were transformed into different type of Christ followers, a different type of Christian, ones who weren't surprised when the fiery trial came to test them, ones who rejoiced in suffering. This Peter who wrote this letter or reading rejoiced when he got beaten. When was the last time he rejoiced when you got beaten? When was the last time you got beaten? I don't know. I, I, I've never, never had that opportunity. For the sake of Jesus Christ, and they couldn't stop preaching and teaching. They did it with reckless abandon, with no fear of suffering. And they lived out this last verse in our passage. 1 Peter four nineteen. Go back there if you're not there. We'll, we'll close with this and, 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 and conclude. Uh, verse 19, they live this out. This verse really encapsulates the message of 1 Peter, many commentaries say. Last verse, it says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's think about that phrase, that entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And this is a God's-inspired word. So why are those particular words chosen to write down? Why doesn't it say, entrust their souls to a faithful Savior, or entrust their souls to Jesus, or to the Father? And, and Peter uses this phrase carefully. And, and he also says, it's not entrust your bodies to a faithful creator, because Peter's body was beaten, right? It was bruised. It was about to be crucified upside down. A few years after he wrote this, it was the tradition. It was expendable. It was dying anyway, just like all of our bodies. Paul was the same. He, he was beaten and bruised. He was stoned. So many saints before us, their bodies were broken. I just read about the Reformation. The first Reformationist, Jan Hus, Hus whatever, it's in Czech, Czech Republic, who was burned at the stake. The first Reformationist. Um, the, the kids who are at Czech Republic, they're going to Prague, and they're going to see a statue right there in, the, in Wenceslas Square, this first martyr of the Reformation. Many people before us, their bodies are broken. Um, Jesus was the first. How did they do that? They entrusted their souls, not their bodies, their souls to a faithful 
creator. And why is it the creator? They knowing that their souls would live on, the creator, we're going to get new bodies. We're going to get new ones. New ones that don't decay. New ones that don't get old. New ones that can run like a deer. I don't know about flying in heaven, but I can't wait to run in heaven. Like I'm going to run with as fast as like a deer. I can't wait for that. That'll be awesome. I don't know if that exactly will happen, but I'm hoping. Um, our faithful creator will give us new bodies. And they saw a resurrected Jesus. They saw the glory. They were convinced and rejoiced in suffering, knowing that their rejoicing would be greater one day. So they entrust their souls, not their bodies, the thing that we always try to protect. And that's how you and I are to suffer for Christ now, to suffer as Christians now in comfy America. The only way to go through suffering is to believe his glory. And the glory we will share with him is worth more than the comfort in avoiding it. The eternal glory we share with Christ from going through suffering is worth infinitely more than the fading comfort we get from avoiding it. That's that's how they were able to rejoice in the midst of suffering because they had their eyes fixed on that future hope that inheritance. So which do I long for more, eternal glory or temporal comfort? I glorify God when I make him my treasure. God glorifies me when he makes me his treasure. We're going to be one someday in heaven. We're all going to be one as the body of Christ. Suffering leads to glory. That's that's a principle from this. There is no glory without suffering. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called to suffer, not, to, not just any suffering, but suffering for his namesake. Because we get glory, we get to be with God forever, and to, to take as many people with us as we can. Running from suffering is running from God. I like to run from suffering. I don't know about you, I, I don't like it, I run from it. Running from this kind of suffering is running from God, because he has this for us. Rejoicing in suffering as we go through it is coming to him. It's hard to say, not easy to do. I mean, sorry. Easy, reverse that. Easy to say, not, not, not easy to do. Let me just conclude with these couple paragraphs. You and I, to encourage us to go out these doors today, we, you and I don't have to go find suffering for Christ. Though everyone in this room maybe could be more bold witnesses for him, we don't have to go find it. And we don't have to feel guilty if we're not suffering like that person. We can let God decide where and when the crucible for our sacrifice will be for him. Right? He can decide. He put us in America for a reason. What we just need to do is be ready when it comes so as not to be surprised when it happens so that we can, like the first Christ followers, rejoice when it happens. Again, easy to say. Here are the questions you and I need to ponder as true Christians, Christ followers. Do, do we see and believe in a resurrected Christ, the resurrected Jesus? Have you seen that in Scripture? Have you seen an ascended Jesus, his glory in scripture? Have you seen that? Like, have you read it? Have you studied it? Do you believe it? Have you seen his glory? Have you, have you heard his commission to go? We say it all the time here. Go make disciples. Have you heard that? Have we received the Holy Spirit to empower us? Do we long to see the glory of Christ? Do we? I mean, how often do we spend thinking about the glory of Christ and not the glory of this new bit of technology in my hand. I don't know. It's just a, just a call for us to fix our eyes. 
Do we long to share in that glory with him? Do we long to be glorified with him? Do we just long to be with him in his arms? Like the prodigal son and the father runs to him. I get that picture. I can't wait. I just want to be with him. He wants to be with me. Do we long for that? Do we want to see others who are dying without that hope to come with us to share in that glory with him? And if the answer is yes to any of those questions, then we can not be, we won't be surprised in suffering for Christ. We'll just long to see him. We won't even think about it. And, and, and we'll just, we'll be rejoicing because we know it's just a little bit longer and we get to see him. So let us be that kind of a church. Let us be those kind of people who just long so much for him that suffering is so small in comparison. Let's pray. Dear Father, I just praise you. Thank you for these truths. Thank you that we can, can uh, just uh, know that your word is true, that we can rest in it. And even if it's hard, even if we don't even know how to do it, even if we don't even have a picture of what it's like, even if we're not even experiencing this exactly yet, Lord, we know that your word doesn't return void. So we just ask, I ask that you would just let your word be what it is, that it would, that it would divide uh, soul and spirit, bone and marrow, that it would be a sharp two-edged sword in our souls, that it would cause us to act how you want us to act, cause us to be how you want us to be, that we're on fire Christians who are willing and able and not surprised at suffering for you in this world. And help us be that, Lord. We need your help and your strength, and we know we have it. We just Help, help us, Lord. Go before us. And we just thank you for this word. May it, may it encourage us as we go out. May we be bolder because of it. May we look more like you, Jesus.